consider these things. So we jump into God's Word this morning, Exodus chapter 20. You'll want to mark your Bible in this place. We're going to be here all summer long uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and looking at a variety of other scriptures as well. But you might want to just mark Exodus 20 and also Deuteronomy 5 is a, is a parallel passage there that we'll be looking at some as well. In both places we find these ten commandments that we hope to become familiar with. Now another question might be asked. Why in the world would we, as a New Testament church, spend a fifth of our year, our entire summer, looking at the Old Testament law known as the Ten Commandments? In fact, there would be some in the church today who would say we are utterly wasting our time because we're New Testament believers. The law has been fulfilled by Christ. As he said, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So why would we go back to the Ten Commandments? Why would we spend our entire summer looking at this? Is it just for Bible knowledge? Or is there something here that's helpful to us as New Testament believers? I hope you'll see that there is much that is extremely helpful to us. And if nothing else, here's one thing that I, that I want you to understand and to take away from each week that we come together. It's this simple phrase. The commandments of God reveal the character of God. Well, let me say that again to you. The commandments of God reveal the character of God. Now, parents and grandparents in this room, let me put this on a level that we can all understand. All of us, hopefully, have some form of household rules that we have in our homes. Now, the purpose of those household rules is so that the home will function as we desire it to function. And we, just like God, we prohibit some things because we prize other things. So let me give you a for instance in our home. It is a regular practice at our home that once the meal is prepared and we are ready to sit down, preparing to sit down at the table, the kids are the ones who set the table. Now sometimes that means that our food is a little colder than it would have been otherwise because they don't like to do it quite as quickly as I, as I think that they ought to. But one of the household rules is we cook the food, you set the table, and you clear the dishes when, when we're done. That's, that's part of our household rule so that this will function well. And, and we prohibit them from opting out on that because we prize their involvement in the family meal. And because I prize a warm meal. Okay, so I want to have dishes on the table and all that goes along with whatever it is that we're eating. We prohibit some things because we prize others. Take that in for a moment and think about the Ten Commandments. Some people simply see a list of a bunch of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And they come away seeing God as one who just wants to poop on all of our parties and prohibit all of our fun. But it's not God at all. In fact, we need to understand very clearly that the reason why he prohibits some things, as we will see, is because he greatly prizes others. The reason why he wants us to stay away from some things is because he wants to point us and lead us and direct us towards some things that are so much better 
than what our sinful hearts would run after if he left us to our own devices. It's because God loves us that he has given us his commandments. His commandments reveal his character. So with that in mind, let's explore the character of God this morning in Exodus chapter 20. If you're able to stand in honor of the word of God this morning, we're just going to look at the first commandment, but we're going to read all ten together. And I want you to, as we read these together, I want you to listen well for what is being revealed about the one true and living God this morning. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, that could be translated to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's be seated today. And Father, as we explore these ten commandments, these ten words that you have graciously given us to in instruct us in your character, to teach us your ways, to show us how to love you well and how to love one another well. Lord, help us to see these as household rules. To see that you as our loving Father are prohibiting some things in order to reveal the fact that you prize other things. And may we prize those things as well for our good and for your great glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Simply entitled to today's message, No Other Gods, based upon uh, this first commandment that we see there in verse 3. But before we get to verse 3 today, I find it interesting that when we see the Ten Commandments, we oftentimes see them 
given starting at verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, the King James Version would say. And, and, and whether you see the King Commandments posted in a, in a public building or at one point when I was growing up they were still posted in a, in a classroom or whether you see them posted in, in your home. It's interesting, when I go to my in-law's house, there is a, a plaque of the Ten Commandments and for whatever reason, it's in the bathroom. I don't know about you, but that has always struck me. There's like a brass plaque of the Ten Commandments staring at you while you're on the toilet. I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. That has no application to today's sermon. It's just odd. And so if you come to my in-law's house at some point, you will see that brass plaque of the Ten Commandments as you use the restroom. But wherever you find them, they often, uh, every time I've ever seen them, they are listed starting at verse 3. But what I want you to see this morning is the Ten Commandments rightly understood must begin at verse 1. This is much like what I talked with you about uh, several months ago when we, when we talked through the Great Commission. And I said, you know, a lot of times when we talk about the Great Commission, we begin with the go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. But we misunderstand the Great Commission if we begin in that verse. We need to start the verse before it where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go ye therefore into all the world. You see, without the verse before it, without the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our going therefore is going to merit absolutely nothing. Because you can't make disciples apart from the power of God. You can't reach the lost apart from the power of His Spirit. You can't do anything apart from the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. And then He brackets the Great Commission with the verse that follows, which He says, And I'll be with you always until the very end of this age. You see, it begins with the power of Christ and it ends with the presence of Christ. And the plan of Christ is there in the middle. In the same way, as we come to the Ten Commandments, I want you to understand, if we begin in verse 3 with the thou shalt not, if we begin in that place and we don't start with verse 1, I need you to understand this morning, you have no ability whatsoever to live according to the Ten Commandments apart from the reality that He is God. He has invited you into a living relationship with Him. And you can't do anything as far as the Ten Commandments are concerned until you recognize and walk in those realities. And so he begins in verse 1 and he reveals to us that he is the God who speaks. Now boys and girls, if you're filling in the outline there, that's the first blank. I want to encourage you to uh, we'll start watching for these underlined words and fill in the outline there. And adults, you can do the same. He is the God who speaks. Look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Sometimes they're referred to as the Ten Commandments. More literally in the Hebrew, it would be the Ten Words. And this is a reminder. This is a reminder that the one true and living God has spoken. Now don't take that for granted this morning. Don't take for granted that the one true and living God has spoken. This is what is important about these commandments. If we simply come to these Ten Commandments as a list of rules and regulations for our lives, 
or some kind of standard by which we will live. If that's all we get, we are missing it wholesale. It has to begin with the fact that the one true and living God has spoken. He is the God who speaks. Author James Hamilton said this. He said, Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, it's the way that God taught, him, taught his people to approach him as Yahweh. Yahweh is the most significant thing about the Ten Commandments. When he gives voice to the inauguration of this covenant, the first thing he does is announce his own identity. Look what he says in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. He speaks, I am the Lord your God. And that's the most important thing. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, I need you to understand that the one true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth, has spoken. And he desires you to hear, to listen, to be changed, and to walk in obedience to his holy word. How does God speak? First of all, he spoke in creation. We go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1, and we find these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, don't minimize that. And God spoke. And when God spoke, something happened. And God said, let there be light. And what? And there was light. And God said, let there be land. And there was land. And God said, let there be stars in the sky and a moon to govern the night and a sun to govern the day. And guess what? All of those things happened simply because God spoke. You need to understand this morning that the Word of God has great power. He spoke creation into being out of absolutely nothing. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. That is a scandalous verse in the culture in which we are residing, but it is truth without any mixture of error. We understand this, that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He created everything out of nothing simply by the Word of His power. This is our God. But He does not just speak in creation. He also speaks in Revelation. Now I am not here referring to the last book of the Bible. I'm referring to Genesis to Revelation. His special revelation, his word is that which reveals his nature, his character. I told you a few minutes ago that his commandments reveal his character, but truthfully, everything in the word of God reveals the character of God. This is how we come to know Him. This is why we are inviting you into discipleship classes where we can grow in the Word of God because we know this. As we get to know His Word more, we get to know Him more. This is His revelation of Himself. And He wants you to know Him, not at a distance, but up close and personal. And so when you open the Word of God and you read the Word of God, understand that the one true and living God is speaking and He desires you to hear from Him. Amen. Isn't that powerful? That He would desire 
to speak to us? And so he has. And so he has. And so we look at Psalm 19, which speaks about the Word of God and says, The law of the Lord is perfect. I just said it's truth without any mixture of error. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord. Another, another word for God's word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And Psalm 19 just continues to go on talking about this. And then you take that and you can go over into Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all the Bible. And guess what it's about? The longest chapter in all the Bible is about the Word of God. And it talks about the precepts and the commands and the testimony of God. And it talks about God's Word over and over and over again. It's laying out the beauty and the intricacy and the glory of the Word of God. And yet how often does it lie gathering dust on our shelves? Only taken out when we're coming to church, and even then we oftentimes forget when God has spoken and His Word is true. And He desires you to know Him, and you will not know Him apart from His Word. He did not send a video to reveal Himself. He did not paint it across the skies, though we can see glimmers of God in creation. We will only come to know the fullness of God through His special revelation. He chose to reveal Himself in a book. And in in Romans chapter 10 it says, And faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. God has spoken, and we pray, God, give us ears to hear that we might have faith in you, that our blind eyes might be open and our deaf ears might be unstopped and our stone-cold hearts might be transformed. This is what we pray. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is breathed out by God. He breathed it out. That's an intimate word. It's like a whisper in the ear. He breathed it out, and it is profitable, it is useful, it is helpful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, so that the people of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Not only will you not know God apart from His special special revelation in the Scriptures, but you will have no clue what He has called you to be and to do with the life He has given you. You will believe the lie that your life was given so that you might spend it upon your own pleasures. You will believe the lie that you were placed upon this earth that you might gain your 15 minutes of fame and stretch them out as long as you can. You will believe that you were put upon this work, on this earth for an occupation. But then, that then one day retirement will come and you will find yourself lost because you're not that anymore. And you won't know what to do unless your identity is firmly grounded in your Creator and the fact that He has said who you are. That He has defined your life. And that He desires that you would be fully equipped. Notice it doesn't say partially equipped. The Word of God is sufficient that we would be fully equipped for every good work. 
And yet we so often neglect the Word of God. He is the God who speaks. Look at verse 2. He is also the God who saves. I am the Lord your God, he says. And in case you aren't clear on who this is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now they're just days away from leaving what had been 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They've now come to the mountain of Sinai. And Moses, their leader, has gone up on the mountain to hear from God. The rest of the people were too afraid. They are cowering down at the foot of the mountain because of the rumblings of God's voice and because of the visible demonstration of the fire that fell upon the mountain when God's presence came. Church, sometimes we are way too comfortable with Almighty God. Sometimes we forget that we have been called into a place of holy reverence. We need to be reminded. He is the God who saves. You see, He saved Israel both from slavery and from defeat. He rescued them single-handedly from 400 years of slavery from the most powerful nation in the world, from the most powerful man in the world known as Pharaoh, who would not let the people go until God crippled the nation of Egypt with those ten plagues and showed that he alone is God. If we go back to Exodus chapter 2, we find these words. That during those many days, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now notice this. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Not only is he the God who speaks, he's the God who hears. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God heard the groaning of his people in Egypt, and he remembered. Now, when you read that word remember, don't think about an amnesiac God here. It wasn't like God, oh yeah, the Israelites, I totally forgot about those, those dudes. No, no, it wasn't that at all. This is God running back to the promises that he had already made. It's not like he, told, he had forgotten in some way. But remember here means literally, I am going to act upon the promises I made back here with Abraham. Hundreds of years before he had promised Abraham... Abraham, your descendants are going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. We're going to have a covenant relationship. I'm going to make a God-sized promise with you and with your descendants. They will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand upon the seashore. So shall your descendants be. Abraham is 75 years old when he receives the promise and has no kids. So how will his descendants be so numerous? Only by the power of God. And he said, I'm going to give you a land, Abraham. I'm going to give you a rich land. Abraham was a nomad and had no land of his own. He traveled from place to place. So how is a nomad supposed to get land of his own? Only by the power of God. And so God promised him that he would have a numerous people. That he would have a wonderful place in which to reside. He and his descendants after him. And that God's presence would be with him. A beautiful covenant promise that God made. And in Exodus chapter 2, God remembers His promise so as to act upon His promise. And He delivers His people from slavery and from defeat. In the same way, church, let's be reminded 
that the events of the Exodus are meant to be a living picture for us of the very same thing that God has done for us as the New Testament church, as the people redeemed by the blood of Christ, just as He saved Israel from slavery and defeat, so He saves us from sin and death. And the Pharaoh had nothing on this. It's one thing to deliver a people from political oppression under an earthly ruler. It's another thing for the God of all creation, the giver of life, to rescue a bunch of rebellious sinners like us by His pure grace alone, by His pure power alone, and for His great glory alone. And so the Exodus becomes a living picture of how God has rescued us by His Son. We see it described in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, never forget that it was for your sake that He took the cross. For our sake, He made Him Christ. The Father made the Son to be sin, though He knew no sin of His own, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange that ever took place. The exodus pales in comparison to what we have in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that today. Finally this morning, look at verse 3. He's the God who speaks. He's the God who saves. And He is the God who is singular. He alone is God. I mean, who has the right to say, you shall have no other gods before me? That word before, by the way, could be translated beside or in opposition to. Who has the right to say that? Only Almighty God. No one else has the right to say that. But He has every right. And He is justified to make this a command because our hearts are idol factories that are quick to make lesser gods that are no gods at all. But this commandment reminds us first that we are neither atheists believing in no god nor polytheists believing in many gods. That was the norm in the Old Testament days. Polytheism, the belief in many gods. They had been rescued out of Egypt where polytheism, the belief in many gods, was rampant. They had gods for everything. But God showed His sovereignty over all of them through those ten plagues. We are monotheists, which was an extreme oddity in the Old Testament days. Every other nation... We're polytheists, believing in many gods, except for the Israelites. Interesting, interesting thing about the Ten Commandments. The last six commandments, the ones that involve our relationship with one another, you find similar commandments to these all throughout the law codes of the ancient Near East. Pretty much every nation had a law against murder, theft, Lying. Pretty much every nation had uh, those last six commandments in some form or another. But you look at the first four commandments. And you will not find the first four commandments anywhere but in Israel. No other God speaks like this, saying you shall have no other gods before me, because every other nation had many gods. That would have been an offense to every other God. No other God do you find in the ancient Near East saying, don't take my name in vain. 
No other God says, set aside a particular day of the week for my worship and call it the Sabbath. And we'll talk about how that's changed in the New Testament church here in a few weeks. On Father's Day, we're going to address the Sabbath and what it means for us. But no other God was saying this. Only the one true and living God was setting aside these first four commandments and saying, this is who I am. And this is how you can love me well. Pastor Tony Marita said the first commandment does away with atheism on the one hand and pantheism or polytheism on the other. It assumes that there is one true God and no other. He doesn't even have to say it. It's just assumed in the text. It also addresses the deep problem of the human heart. I would even say the deepest problem, which is our idolatry. We love to make false gods. We'll be talking about what some of those are next week. But for now, just understand that this is what it means to be sinners. That we love to erect false gods in our life in opposition to the one true and living God. But by His grace, He rescues us from our idolatry. As we finish today, I want to I fly through just rapid fire some truths about who this God is. Again, the commandments of God reveal the character of God. If you would know Him... You must know Him as He has revealed Himself, not as you would make Him to be. So for those who look at difficult things in the Scripture and say, well, my God would never do that. No, of course He wouldn't because the God of you, that you're talking about is no God at all. He's the God of your imaginations. Allow God the privilege to be who He has revealed Himself to be. And there are difficult things in the Word of God. There are difficult things here. There are things that we don't like in the Scriptures. There are things we don't understand in the Scriptures. But we receive them by faith because the one true and living God has spoken and He has saved us. And so who is this God? Here's what I've done this week. I began to search that phrase, I am the Lord your God. And I began to notice that there are, it's like the refrain of the Old Testament. It's like God will give some instructions, some commandments, and then the refrain is, I am the Lord your God. And sometimes he shortens it to just, I am the Lord, but it's the same idea. It's the refrain, and especially in the book of Leviticus, which is really just a fleshing out of the Ten Commandments, the book of Leviticus is, is just continual for a refrain. It's, it's 50 times in the book of Leviticus that you find either I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. And so this is the refrain. It's continually being spoken by God to His people. Don't forget, I'm the Lord. Don't forget, I'm the Lord your God. And here's what I discovered. As I was reading through those 50 occurrences in the book of Leviticus alone, I didn't even get to the rest of the Old Testament where we find this numerous places. Just the book of Leviticus. I want you to see a five-fold pattern of who God is. When he says, I'm the Lord, what's he saying? Here are five things that are intricately tied into the nature of God as he has revealed himself just in the book of Leviticus. We're not going to look at all of those scriptures. They're there in your notes if you want to look them up and have a little Bible study of your own this week. I encourage that you will be blessed. Five things. Number one. He is a God of consecrating purity. Multiple times he says, I am the Lord your God, so be holy as I am holy. 
Be set apart. Be pure. Don't be like all the rest of the peoples of the world. Because I'm holy, I want to enable you to walk in holiness, to be a people set apart, different from the world. He's a God of consecrating purity. Number two, he is a God of concern for the poor. Church, I fear that we have forgotten this. That we serve the one true and living God who has an immense heart for the poor, for the foreigner, for the widow, for the orphan, for those who are unable to meet their needs, who do not have the resources of this world. Our God has an intense heart. He says, I am the Lord, and he makes provision for the poor time and time again. Go look at it for yourself. Number three, he is the God of commendation for the obedient and condemnation for the obstinate. He blesses those who turn away from sin and walk in obedience to his commands. And he leaves curses upon those who continue to stubbornly persist in their sin. If you go over to Leviticus chapter 26, you see both in the same chapter. In the beginning of the chapter, he says, here's the folks that I want to bless, those who are walking in obedience to my commands. This is a pathway toward blessing. But for those who stubbornly persist in rebellion against me, continue to cling to their sin, there is condemnation for them. And rightly so. Fourth, he is a God of copious provision. Abundant provision in our lives. So much so that his son comes and says, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance, have it in the overflow. He doesn't want to give us just a little bit of life. He wants to give it in the overflow. He's a God of copious provision. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, and perhaps I should have made this number one, He is the God of covenant promises. He ties His nature as the Lord our God into this reality that He has made immense promises to us that only He can keep. You see, in the Old Testament days, they were used to covenants. Two kings would come together and they'd make a covenant with one another to be allies. Two landowners would come together and they would make a covenant with one another uh, to operate uh, their, uh, their adjoining lands together and to be friendly toward one another. There were various places in which covenants were formed, but this covenant is unique. Every other covenant that you find in the Old Testament days always involved two parties holding up their end of the bargain. But then God comes and makes a covenant. And He places it all, every iota of the law, upon Himself. He makes it so clear from the very beginning with His covenant with Abraham Abraham is asleep as God is making the covenant. Did you ever catch that? It's God who enacts the covenant, and it's God who keeps the covenant. Believers in this room, that is the basis for your salvation. If the hand of Almighty God is not upholding the rescue of your soul. There is nothing that you can do to merit this great salvation. It has been offered to you freely by the finished work of Christ at the cross. Every covenant was instituted through the shedding of blood. 
And the covenant that God has made with us is no different. Except rather than being the blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and doves, it was the blood of his perfect son. Once again, he who knew no sin of his own became sin for us that we might in him become the righteousness of God. And he accomplished perfectly the fulfilling of this covenant law that we broke at every juncture. Let me leave you with Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. The book of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He experienced every temptation that we experience, and yet he was victorious over them all. Because he's the one who came out to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. To do what we could never do. And in response to the devil saying, if you'll only bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. In response to that offer, Jesus answered him. And I think this comes straight out of the first commandment. Jesus answered him and said, it is written. Who wrote it? The very one who's speaking right here. God in the flesh says it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve that's the fleshing out of the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me and in that moment Jesus had the victory that we could never have in our flesh Jesus did for us what we could never do he fulfilled the law that we have broken at every juncture because our sin-soaked hearts are idol factories that would have a million gods in opposition to him rather than bowing in worship to the one true and living God. And it is not until Jesus Christ rescues you from your idolatry that you will recognize that all that you need is found in him and in him alone.